a true crime story and we drink. The following content may be disturbing to some. Discretion is advised. If you choose to enjoy one of our themed margaritas, please ensure that you are of legal drinking age and have fun but drink responsibly. hours of April 28, 1908, in Laporte, Indiana, the massive, glowing fire coming from Belle Gunness's farmhouse could be seen for miles. A man was witnessed running from the scene. He would later be arrested and identified as Ray Lamphere. Belle, a wealthy widow, lived at the homestead with her three young children. Investigators would later find the bodies of those three children and a charred, headless body, believed to be Belle Gunness. Ray would be charged with arson and murder. But not everything was what it seemed. So when I think of the farm, I think of watermelon. There's something nostalgic about watermelon seed-spitting contests at county fairs. I mean, I personally never participated in one, so maybe it's not a thing. Also, does anyone even buy watermelons with seeds anymore? I guess there's no more contests. Anyway, for this particular recipe, we're also featuring a candy, a watermelon-flavored candy, a nod to something that you'll have to see in a little bit. First off, you're going to want to do some fancy muddling of your fresh watermelon in the bottom of your shaker, just like that. Once you're well muddled, you're going to want to add your ice, and then you'll start to add your booze. We're going to start with one part tequila straight into your shaker, and then to your one part tequila, you're going to want to add a watermelon-based alcohol. I think in an ideal world you would use watermelon liqueur, but I went to two separate liquor stores that did not have watermelon liqueur, so I'm stuck with watermelon vodka. you got to have your one part lime juice. And I'm also going to add one part simple syrup and one part triple sec. You probably could skip the triple sec and do two parts of your watermelon-based alcohol, but I'm not the biggest fan of vodka, so we're just gonna make this a full-flavored drink. I don't know. All right, gotta shake her up. Shake well to get that watermelon in there. Pop off the lid. Bougie strain. I'm using a salt-rimmed glass for today's drink, but you could easily do sugar. And then I've also li lined the glass with some watermelon Sour Patch Kid candy because I'm an adult and I can eat as much candy as I want. Y'all, I am declaring it right now. This is the best margarita that I have made on this channel thus far. I suppose uh, you don't have to take my word for it. The Recipe is in the description box, but you should 
You should definitely make this margarita and let me know what you think. Belle Gunnis was born on a small farm in Norway in November of 1859. Her birth name was Brynhild Paulstetter Storseth. She was the youngest of eight children and it seemed that she lived a relatively uneventful childhood. There is a story from her later adolescence that may hold some keys to her later pathology, so to speak. As a 17-year-old, Belle found herself pregnant. She decided to attend a country dance where a man who was not the baby's father attacked her and kicked her straight in the stomach. This caused her to miscarry her baby. The man came from a wealthy family and he was never prosecuted for the crime, but he did end up dying a short time later for what was allegedly stomach cancer. Not to give away what the rest of the episode is about, but we're gonna be using the word allegedly quite a bit. And every time we say the word allegedly or describe a suspicious death of some kind, we're going to go ahead and uh, raise that uh, body count counter and you're going to hear a... So uh, in the case of this guy, Belle's friends and family noticed a marked change in her personality from before this incident and after. But after the death of her attacker, Belle focused her sights on something that she wanted to do more than anything else, move to the United States. She believed, as many did then and now, that going to the United States was her chance for economic freedom. Basically, Belle wanted to get rich. Her older sister, Nellie, had already moved to Chicago a few years before, and so Belle saved up her money for a ticket, and she headed to meet her sister in Chicago. She was 21 years old at the time, and she went ahead and Americanized her name to Bella Peterson. Eventually, she would just start going by Belle. She worked as a servant for a time until she met a fellow Norwegian-born immigrant named Mads Sorensen. Mads was a hardworking fellow. He was a guard at a department store, and they quickly fell in love and got married. Mads was ready right away to start his dream of having a big American family. It seems that Belle and Mads were pretty smart, I guess, or just became infatuated with the idea of insurance. And man, they were well insured. Insurance for property had existed since 1732, but during the 19th century, insurance companies started to evolve and offer different kinds of insurance. And Mads and Bell sure did ride that train. They bought a candy shop, hence the watermelon candy, and heavily insured it. Evidently, though I'm not sure how, the candy business was not booming, and within a year, the shop had mysteriously burned to the ground, and Mads and Belle easily collected the insurance money. It was said that the only time the candy shop was profitable was after it was in ashes. Hmm. Let's be clear that this wasn't the first time that a fire had raged in the Sorensen household, not injuring a single one of them, but paying out insurance money handsomely. And it would not be the last fire either. Speaking of insurance, they also insured themselves and their children. Quick note on their children. Some historians believe that Mads and Belle never actually had any children of their own. It's possible that after Belle suffered that miscarriage, she was unable to carry children. It appears that they possibly fostered neighborhood children whose parents could not care for them because they were in a financial position 
after all that insurance money, to care for children. And based on their very close birth dates, it's probable that at least some of them were foster children. Indeed, they did officially take in an older child that they fostered who was named Jenny Olson. Alex, some historians call him Axel, Caroline, Lucy, and Myrtle were born right around the turn of the 20th century. Caroline and Alex died in childhood of what they termed colitis. Childhood death was fairly common during that time. In fact, 24% of American children wouldn't make it to their fifth birthday. Okay, well, Caroline and Alex may have died of colitis, but Apparently, the symptoms of colitis also mirror the symptoms of poisoning, and based on the things that we learn about Belle later, well, I think we can add a couple of to our count. And let's be clear, the life insurance was collected. Speaking of life insurance, pretty quickly, Belle determines that Mad simply doesn't have enough life insurance on himself, so insists that he gets another plan. Mads agrees, and he decides to just let the old plan lapse. Well, on the one day that those two plans overlap, yeah, you guessed it. On July 30th, 1930, Mads comes home with a pretty bad headache, according to Belle. She gives him some headache powder and sends him up to bed, where she goes to find him later dead. The first doctor to see him very clearly believed that Mads had been poisoned with strychnine. However, the Sorensen family doctor had been treating Mads for an enlarged heart, and so therefore on the official death certificate it was listed as heart failure. Mads' family was super suspicious and asked for both an investigation and for Mads' body to be exhumed to be tested for potential poisoning. Apparently, that never happened. The insurance companies paid out to the tune of about $8,500, which is about $269,000 in today's money. A big chunk of change. Harkening back to her childhood days on the farm, Belle decided to move to the outskirts of LaPorte, Indiana, with her surviving children, Jenny, Myrtle, and Lucy. She went ahead and bought a farm. The farm happened to be a former brothel, much to the chagrin of the neighbors. But it had good bones. It was a two-story brick building with lots of bedrooms and a lot of acreage to farm. The neighbors were happy to see Belle move there and to transform the home into a happy, healthy, working farm for her and her children. Evidently, Laporte was home to many Norwegian immigrants, and in 1902, Belle married Peter Gunnis. He was a tall, blonde, bearded fellow who was a widow himself. He had two young daughters. One week after the marriage in April, one of those daughters died of an alleged virus. And Belle and Peter's love story was a short one. On a cold December evening, just eight months after their marriage, Jenny heard a terrible crash downstairs below her bedroom. She rushed down to find her stepfather, whom she called Papa, writhing in pain on the kitchen floor. Belle screamed that the meat grinder had fallen straight off the shelf and bludgeoned him in the back of the head. He would be dead by sunrise. 
When the coroner looked at the body, he allegedly murmured, this is a case of murder. Jenny may have even told a classmate that her mother had hit her stepfather over the head with a meat cleaver. Though the authorities investigated, Belle was a pretty convincing woman and no charges were filed. She collected what amounted to $100,000 in life insurance for Peter's death. A year later, Peter's brother, Goost, came to visit the family farm and was so creeped out by Belle that in the middle of the night, he took Peter's daughter, Swanhild, and went back to his house. That likely saved her life. Smart move. Okay, so now things are getting serious. You might wanna make a second delicious watermelon margarita. I think we should take a second to talk about Belle's physical appearance. She had long blonde hair, shiny white teeth, and bright blue eyes. Stories of her physique may have been exaggerated somewhat over the years, but it was understood that she was over six feet tall, and by 1908, she weighed about 280 pounds. She was a big lady. Despite this, she was able to corset her waist fairly tightly and give off some very shapely, sexy curves that undoubtedly would make any man give a second look. Belle was a strong lady and needed no man to help her with the hog farming that she did in Laporte. But she wanted many men, or at least she wanted their bank accounts. Soon after Peter's death, Belle began submitting personal ads to three Norwegian language newspapers throughout the Midwest. Those ads asked for a strong and reliable partner to come and work on the farm and perhaps become her husband. A couple of catches though. The man had to agree to come and visit the farm in person and they had to agree to bring some cash to prove they were wealthy. Seems logical, I guess. Okay. Belle's last son, Philip, was born in the spring of 1903. There's sort of an interesting story about his birth as well. So apparently, when Jenny ran to town to get the midwife to say that her mom was in labor and the midwife and Jenny came back to the farm, well, Philip was already born, bathed in a crib and sleeping, and Belle was outside just doing chores. He was also a pretty big infant, if you know what I mean. But Belle had a, an explanation, I guess. She just said that back on the farm in Norway, you just, that's what you did. You had a baby and you got right back to work. No time to rest, I guess. So during this time, Belle's bad luck just seemed to continue. She would have suitors coming and coming and then just disappearing in the middle of the night. Why couldn't she get one to stay? Was she doomed to be alone forever? Hmm. During this time, she did manage to hire a helpful farmhand named Ray Lamphere. Ray even lived at the farm for some time in a spare bedroom of Belle's, and it seems that during this time, he really fell in love with Belle, but he didn't have a big enough bank account for her, so um, I guess that saved his life. When one of Belle's suitors arrived and proposed, she told Ray that he had to get out of the spare bedroom because that suitor was going to be living in the spare bedroom until they got married. Ray stormed out of the house, 
quitting the farming job in a fit of jealous rage. He even refused to come back to work after Belle's fiance just disappeared in the middle of the night. Ah, Belle's bad luck just continued time and time again. And uh, maybe this was a motive for Ray to commit arson? Okay, let's talk about Jenny. You know, Jenny, the foster child that Mads and Belle had adopted, the one who liked to cause trouble by telling classmates that her mom had murdered her dad? Well, Jenny by this time had blossomed into a beautiful young woman who was drawing suitors of her own to the farm. In 1906, Jenny started telling friends that her mom wanted her to go to Los Angeles to go to college. Jenny didn't want to go, but she was committed to doing what her mom thought was best. Sorry for this, but her bludgeoned body would be found on the farm after the fire in 1908. On April 27, 1908, Belle visited a local lawyer in order to write and sign a will. In her will, she left all of her property and assets to her children, except in the case of their death, in which everything would go to the Norwegian children's home or orphanage. When the lawyer said that he would need to get the real name of that children's home in order for the will to be authorized, Belle convinced him that they could just sign it anyway and he could take care of those details later. The lawyer relented and their signatures went side by side on the bottom of the document. That night, the Gunnis farm burned. After the fire died down to a smoldering rubble, investigators began to excavate the farm. Within two days, outside of the farmhouse, they located 11 bodies, only eight of which could be positively identified. One was Andrew Helgeline, whose own brother had discovered the body because when Andrew stopped returning letters, his brother had become suspicious and had gone to the Gunnis farm in order to try to find his brother. Others included Ole Budsberg, Henry Gerholtz, John Moe, Thomas Lindho, Olaf Svenharud, Olaf Lindblom, and Jenny. No ding for that one. We already got her. They would eventually find body parts that could potentially be linked to up to 27 more victims. Just imagine you're hearing that sound 27 times. Inside the house, they found the bodies of Philip, Myrtle, and Lucy. Those bodies were in the basement of the farmhouse, along with the body of a headless woman. Could it be Belle? Or could it be... Several of Belle's neighbors and friends, both from Laporte and Chicago, looked at the body and declared there was no way it could have been Belle. The corpse, even if it had had a head, was no taller than five foot three inches tall and weighed no more than 150 pounds. That's not even close to what Belle looked like. Remember, Belle was over six feet tall. There's no way that there was that big of a discrepancy. Belle's dentist declared that if they could find some teeth, then he would be able to positively identify if the work was his or not. They hired a former miner to come out and sift for teeth instead of sifting for gold and Sure enough, magically, he turned up some bridge work that had some porcelain teeth, some gold teeth, and two real teeth. 
The dentist identified it as his work, and then the coroner ruled that the body was Belle Gunness's. But, um, what happened to the head of that body? Oh, and later it was determined by a pathologist in Chicago that some of the organs in that body contained lethal levels of strychnine. I think we will go ahead and give it a... At the end of the day, it's believed that Bell killed anywhere from 11 to 45 people. The site of the murders of Bell Gunnis became just a tourist destination. People visited from across the country and they traipsed through the farm looking at the dead bodies, um, drinking lemonade and treating it generally like a day at the fair. If you go online, you can see tons of images of this happening throughout the weeks after the discovery of the murders. It was a pretty wild time back then. Although, I guess there are probably crime scene tourists today too. A female serial killer is fairly rare. Even over the last century, only 11% of serial killers are female. 50% of all female serial killers use poison, which accounts for some of the deaths surrounding Belgunas, but not all of them. Evolutionary psychologists tend to agree that female serial killers primarily kill for financial gain. The theory also suggests that women kill people who they know or are near their home or are brought into their home. They, for lack of a better term, gather their victims around them versus going out and hunting their victims as male serial killers tend to do. It was noted that Belle's personality changed after the death of her unborn child at age 17. Could this have led to some sort of trauma-induced psychopathy that plagued her for the rest of her life? Maybe. The research on that is scant and even then, that kind of trauma typically happens much earlier in childhood or it's a traumatic brain injury. Neither one of those accounts for what happened to Belle. What I actually think is that Belle just fell in love with money. Remember, that was her dream, to, to move to America and become rich. Insurance fraud was incredibly common in the 1800s, and killing people for the insurance money was pretty much a common plot by the late 1800s and remained that way because it was easy to do. Forensic evidence wasn't really a thing back then, and so you could do it and pretty easily get away with it. Belle was a very formidable, just convincing woman, and it seems like she was also quite the actor. It probably was fairly convincing as an investigator to see Belle sobbing and wailing over the loss of her husband, whom she evidently loved deeply. What motive would she have to lie? Well, what about her varying methods of murder? You know, serial killers tend to have a pattern and they stick to that pattern. Well. I don't know if I buy that she actually killed 45 people. I think there was probably a combination of people dying of natural causes and Belle murdering people. It seems that a lot of her early crimes and crimes towards children were poisoning, which makes a lot of sense, versus crimes in her later life towards adult men, which tended to be more violent. All of that kind of makes sense to me. 
Ray Lamphere was arrested and charged with arson. He managed to dodge any murder charges. He was convicted of arson, but it didn't really matter as he died within one year of being convicted. Only one suitor ever survived their visit to Bell Gunnis's murder farm. George Anderson, one of the men who had answered Bell Gunnis's personal ad, came to the farm and agreed to both marry her and pay off the mortgage. One night, as he slept, the presence of someone in his bedroom woke him with a start. He saw Belle, with a menacing look in her eye, clutching a hammer. And he hightailed it out of that bedroom, out of that house, and as far away as he can get. Smart move. So what do you think? How does someone commit so much insurance fraud and get away with it? How does someone commit so much murder and get away with it? Was Belle's trauma in her teenagehood enough to cause her to become an actual psychopath, murdering left and right? How can someone murder children with seemingly no remorse in the way that she did? And it's proven that she killed at least one of her children, Jenny. Was it her body they found in the house? Did she rip out her own bridge in order to hide the fact that she had burned down the house and was running away? Do you think she found a new life and didn't keep killing? And what do you think about all those crime scene tourists? Do you enjoy the macabre so much that you would sip a watermelon margarita while visiting the murder farm on a spring afternoon? Speculations about what happened to Belle Gunnis have been frequent. Sightings of her began to happen almost immediately after the fires, which seems to happen all the time. The bodies of all three of her children and her alleged body were exhumed in 2008 for DNA testing. They also wanted to test the envelope that she had sent to one of her suitors and I guess had licked. That DNA testing proved inconclusive. The mystery of Belle Gunnis remains a mystery. Thanks for hanging out with me. I hope this margarita was enough to help you make it through this episode. I'm pretty sure that Belle Gunnis not only got away with it, but went on and continued her murderous ways. But that's a story for another episode. We've had enough for today. Be sure to prepare yourself for next week. It's a heavy one. But it's an important story about crime, institutional racism, and Hawaii in the 1930s. And if you're coming for the drinks, there's an island margarita headed your way that's sure to please. If you haven't rated Margs and Mayhem on wherever you're enjoying it, please be sure to do so. And if you have an idea for a case, come hang out with us on social media. See you next week, and remember, there's always alternatives to murder.